Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 12. I waited until external pickups couldn't pick up anything. This seemed to take too little time for comfort. In my mind, the immediate vicinity around the shuttle had to be filled with hyper-motivated freedom fighters for whom it was a sacred duty to watch an empty shuttle, liberated and owned by the people at last, though just sitting here quietly now, cooling down. My left leg was getting a wicked charley horse, so my own sacred duty amounted to getting off the shuttle. That could require shooting some patriots. Patriots, loyalists, stray dogs, anybody who looked at me wrong. Yep, I was scared. How had I pulled off such a screw-up this time? I could barely think. No, that wouldn't do. That wasn't the way we did things on Griselda. The prisoners were likely offloaded by now. That had to be my goal here. Small and his crew, too. Maybe. Okay, they were secondary. But my leg hurt. I unfastened the cargo straps and clumsily crawled over to cut that drolic line for the hatch, the suit floods throwing weird shadows as I moved. Reddish fluid sprayed all over the inside of the gate, dark and gory in the poor light, and I worked fast to push open the magnetic lock, mostly by stomping on it. It was tempting to just hang out in there. The shuttle would return to the station eventually, maybe even soon. That seemed passive, though, and plainly stupid. It was likely that someone down here, charged with inspection duties, would open the hold and spot me. Normal tween flight maintenance should include such a thing. No, I had to get out. With the line cut, the only thing to worry about was the lock. It didn't budge from a few small stomps, and I was afraid of making a lot of noise. I stood on it, then braced against the low ceiling with my back and pushed hard. I guess I didn't think it through because suddenly I was falling. Brilliant sunlight blink-polarized my helmet, so I had a shadowy glimpse of black tarmac rising up before hitting face down with an utter lack of ceremony and breath. Man, I had to pee. I'd fallen about three meters from the open belly gate above, protected for the most part by the crush resistance of the scale suit. I just lay there, stunned, not thinking, not moving for a bit. The faceplate had a nifty scratch along the front now, right at eye level, but that was a whole lot better than a fractured cheek or a broken nose and missing teeth. I got up on my knees. I was under the fuselage. Fumbling with the snap ring around the helmet for a few seconds, it finally clicked and hissed, and I had my first taste of Barlow's cold, crisp, and ever so slightly ozonic air, a residual effect of the engine exhaust. My ears popped, too, as the pressure was a bit less than the suits, at least on this day, at this time, in this weather. 
Weather. Unbelievable. It had been many years since I'd been in a well. Years even since I'd thought of the concept in anything like a personal way, in any manner that could possibly include me. I lifted the helmet slowly, carefully, then set it down on the pavement by my knees. There was a slight breeze on my face, a real breeze, more subtle than a forced air vent or blower, but less centralized too. Just knowing that I couldn't shut it off if I wanted to was unsettling. This was madness. The difference to my sensations and sensibilities was so great, so unexpected, that I needed a moment to collect myself. I had been in space less than an hour before, weightless, breathing from tanks on my back. I could glide and swoop with my suit thrusters. I could flip and spin and fall forever. Now I was sitting here, breathing, just breathing. No compressed air, no mechanical assistance. The suit was all important up there. Now it was just clumsy and ridiculous. Distant voices brought me to earth. They were raised and calling to each other, though not with urgency. Every physical feeling surrounding this moment might have been sitting in direct dichotomy to those I'd counted as normal up above, but that same feeling I had while hovering around Dock C, that same overriding need to stay hidden and unknown, was familiar. It was visceral and grounding in a way the ground itself was not. It was fear, the universal constant. I couldn't make out any words, but neither did I hear people running my way. No bullets were zipping by either, which was nice. Leaning low and peeking out from under the leading edge of the shuttle, I just caught a glimpse of armed guards hustling two people into a ground car parked by a low, glass-faced building. One of the prisoners was a dark woman with graying dreadlocks. In moments, the car drove off around the building. It felt almost like a piece of home had just rolled out of sight. And I needed to do something much the same. Whatever was happening with Carmi and Dell, I had to think of me. I had to leave. But not blindly, not in panic. I closed my eyes and just breathed the alien air until I was calmer and could prioritize again. My stuff, where was it? I had managed to disassemble and bag up the panther during re-entry. My flight bag had followed me out when I'd fallen, but its strap had caught on one corner of the belly gate, and it just dangled there above my face, swaying lazily in the wind. I was able to yank it down without too much difficulty, and a quick check revealed that everything inside was okay. The tool bag, on the other hand, was still inside, and the opening was too high to reach. Another person, unencumbered by a suit and maybe 20 kilos lighter, might have been able to jump and pull themselves back up, but not me. Stunts like that had been lost under years of diner food and a general aversion to exercise. Looking around, it seemed I was also really exposed to view along the starboard side of the shuttle. A portside gangway blocked me from anybody over that way, while fore and aft were fairly low to the ground. Normally, I'd have expected a service team out here already, refueling, inspecting, performing basic maintenance, etc. Shuttles only pulled their monetary weight if they were flying, after all. But apparently, this wasn't a normal day, for which I had no complaints. The scale suit was heavy under Barlow's 1.1G, 
It took me several minutes to remove on my own, and I ripped holes in my stolen jumpsuit when pulling off the leg plates. The jumper was blood-spattered and soiled and had never fit well. It wasn't made for cold weather, either, and Barlow's chill breeze was already uncomfortable. I fished that blue cloth out of my flight bag, fought with the knot a bit, and then tied it around my left arm, the way the airlock man had worn it. My scale suit, now that it was off, was a problem. I could have tossed it into the hold overhead, piece by piece, just to get it out of sight, but that would have likely involved missing a bunch of times and making a lot of noise. After a bit of thought, simply leaving it all there and putting distance between myself and the shuttle seemed like the best solution. Shouldering my flight bag, I cinched it up so that the panther's pistol grip inside was within easy reach. Carrying it all like that probably looked weird, and shooting from the hip, as it were, was another consideration altogether. I could do exactly that, though, right through the bag if needed. Nonchalance was the goal, but I'd settle for awkward and silly if it would get me past these people safely. Hoping I embodied the very picture of a card-carrying anti-elitist, I took another deep breath of the local air, so cold and fresh, and stepped out from under the aft wing base. It was logical to act like I belonged with the shuttle crew, so I spent a little time inspecting the wing fuel tank and the thruster housing. I looked over the outer surface and bent low as if to get a view of the underside, but really so as to turn and look at the landing pad. There were several people near the terminal bay, all busy with different jobs and concerns. I was in plain sight here and took a chance and waved easily at one of the figures. A woman, I thought, but it was hard to tell because they all wore vermilion, one-piece cold gear, including caps and heavy boots. It certainly wasn't that cold right now, but maybe there were safety regs about it. At any rate, even from a distance, the blue armbands, worn by all, were easy to pick out. One worker had even crudely painted a revolutionary box star on his or her back. The person I waved to returned the greeting, then pumped a gloved fist in the air. I did the same, and then went back to my fake inspection. They were too far away to shoot at, and I hope they stayed that way. I continued for maybe a minute or so before that same one shouted something at me in low speak. Definitely a woman. Now, I yelled back, having no idea what she'd said, but using one of the only words I'd picked up from Ben Roggenston. I then gestured to my groin, grabbing it with my free hand and hamming up a little dance like I had to pee, which I still did, darn it. She laughed and said something else I couldn't understand, then pointed off to a set of double doors in that glass-faced building. I waved my thanks, then trotted off across the tarmac. Despite my urgency, rather than make for the fresher, restroom here on planet, I guess, I wanted to sail right through the small building and head directly out into the surrounding community. A man in an unfamiliar dark green uniform, armed with a stubby automatic weapon of some sort, stood just inside the doors as I came in. He looked over my soiled, blood-spattered jumpsuit and blue armband, nodded with pride to a fellow patriot, and then returned his gaze to the many other people in the terminal. No, actually, that's too generous. It was basically just a waiting room with a single long counter to one side. Behind this, hard-eyed, blue-banded men and women stood talking authoritatively with a press of people before them. 
These other folks wore a variety of classy suits and overcoats that seemed weirdly out of place. Those right up at the counter spoke with the ticket agents in quiet, desperate tones, credit sticks and various proofs of identity in hand. About two dozen other hopeful passengers, some with bags, some with nothing, sat fidgeting on rows of hard plastic seats which took up the center of the room. There were more glass doors on the opposite side. This was the front of the building. I could see both ground and air cars parked out there in a small paved lot, along with more armed soldiers. A small crowd of anxious civilians were before them, bags and kids in tow. The guards were preoccupied with these people, but there were other types out there too, with data pads and binders. If one of them stopped me, demanding my papers or whatever, I'd have to make a break for it, which could involve gunplay. Since there were more guards than ejocks, I decided to take that pee after all while I thought of another plan. The fresher was a tiny unisex thing and empty when I tried it. There was a lock on the door, which I made use of. After easing my bladder at last, a bunch of possible dangers came to mind as I washed up. It was only a matter of minutes, I knew, before the scale suit was spotted. After that, they'd be looking for the elitist spy who'd come down from space to wreak havoc on their world. I wanted to be well away by then, but that meant getting through the guards and bureaucrats outside. Carmi, Dell, and their captors must have been waved right on through. Maybe I could use the power of the jumpsuit-blue-band combo one more time and try the same action? It was risky, but... The mold stone wall behind me just above my head blasted open then as a steady line of rip-rounds tore through it from the other side. I had a holy friggin' crap they're onto me moment as I lay on the floor hugging the toilet. The sound of gunfire and screaming from out in the waiting room and farther off told me that I likely wasn't the immediate target, while the stone powder falling everywhere explained how immaterial that was. Keeping as low as possible, I crawled over to unlatch the door and peep out. Rounds kept popping through the walls and even the door above my head while I held it open a crack. It was a mess out there, with panicked civilians kissing the floor like me. Several of them were praying and crying, and a few were bleeding. The guards from outside the terminal had come inside to take up crouched positions just near the doors. Or some of them had. I could see crumpled uniform bodies on the floor, too. Turning to look out to the tarmac, I saw squads of military types swoop onto the landing pad from one side, flanking the building. They wore uniforms like I'd seen on the vids. A vermilion figure ran past the door at that moment attempting to flee, but seemed to trip and fall. I was tempted to stay there, hoping to remain unharmed by random fire and doing my best not to draw any directly. But a kind of coolness came over me at last. It wasn't bravery, but I was suddenly calm. It wasn't desperation, though I was thinking fast. This was a battle scenario. They were ships. I was a ship. I had hostile targets moving in, launching restrictive fire. With the only possible escape vectors blocked by greatly superior numbers, the battle theater required a game-changer. Staying low, I opened my bag and reassembled the panther. Both inserts clipped in place, and I selected the ape rounds. I then re-secured the bag to my back and crawled out of the fresher. 
Loyalist forces in the parking lot and those out on the tarmac both laid down fire, cutting through walls and armor glass alike. We were caught in a crossfire. Clearly, the revolutionaries couldn't win this fight, but based on what I'd seen on the vids, they couldn't surrender either. Maybe no one could, including bystanders. I decided to eliminate the need and scuttled to the doors and back. Soldiers out there were peppering the building from covered positions, a few of them right under the shuttle. Armor glass was hard to break under normal use, and when it did go completely, it would burst into tiny bits, all round and smooth. Crawling over the shattered pieces of the stuff didn't open any veins, but there was blood enough anyway, pooling from the worker lying just outside. It was the fellow with the box star on his back, and I could see it was a he now because his surprised, blinking eyes stared at me as he gurgled breath and bloody phlegm. He was young, hardly out of his teens, with dark eyes and acne on fair skin. It was like he really didn't get what had happened. The fighting had been relegated to the news vids, which meant the revolution had already been won, and certainly this was a cheat. Didn't the elitists know the war was over? Didn't anyone tell them they had lost? How could there still be? Of course, I have no idea what he was thinking. But that's what I imagined when his eyelids just stopped fluttering. His eyes centered on nothing, and his breath hissed out like he had a leak. It was weird. In all the insanity, all that crazy chaos, he was so still. I wondered what it felt like to try and keep your eyes open in that cold, dry air and figured it must sting. Or maybe not. Not for him. One of the rebels from the other side of the room shouted at me in low speak with urgency and near panic. Naturally, he saw a fellow believer with a weapon pointed at the enemy. Naturally, I didn't know what he was talking about and just waved at him to keep low. He scooted near, stealing a glance over my shoulder, then snapped off a few rounds to little effect other than deafening my right ear. There were some high windows along this side which, remarkably, were still intact save for some holes. I motioned for him to take up a crouched position near one. He argued that for a few seconds, then blah-blahed something else in a reassuring tone before giving me a quick squeeze of the shoulder and hands and kneesing it back to the front. One last stand in the cause of freedom, his body language was saying, but I wasn't listening. The soldiers on my side were moving in now, slowly, dashing from one piece of cover to another. A woman, taking a position near the shuttle's landing gear, had a large tubular something or other in her hands that gave the impression of a weapon that could make a very big boom. The fact that they hadn't used it yet implied they wanted the travel port back in government hands without destroying it utterly. If so, that was a practical goal, which could change for practical reasons. They spotted me ruminating there, peeking out with my weapon, and the stone mold nearby turned to feta cheese. I thumbed the rifle to semi-auto and fired out over all their heads at the wing tank of the shuttle, sitting silently there behind them on the tarmac. But I missed. The rifle's clever counterventing may have prevented any recoil, but it still felt like an angry living thing in my hands. The armor-penetrating high-explosive rounds punched through the shuttle's hull, pop, 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 and burst inside the boat with concussive bangs that knocked out its portside windows. Boom, boom, boom.
The soldiers crouched in surprise, but the vessel just stood there on its strutted landing gear, belching thick black smoke. I fired again, my aim no better than before. The loyalists were all lying flat, as what they took for artillery shells fell from an unknown source. The woman underneath, though, with that big weapon, had stayed her ground. She'd been shielded from the blasts above and had the bulky tube hoisted to her shoulder. I could see her plainly from across the tarmac, looking directly at me, and she took careful aim. But I fired before she could and finally found my target. With another bang, much bigger this time, the wing burst into a ball of orange flame, the shuttle's liquid fuel within detonating like a bomb. It was too effective, in fact, because the explosion flipped a nearby baggage cart up and through the air, trailing flames and the body of a soldier who'd been hiding behind it. It came right through the windows next to me, as well as part of the ceiling, and crumbling moldstone garbage dropped onto my head and back. That hurt, but the stuff was light and specifically designed not to crush people in the event of a quake or other natural disaster. Unsurprisingly, a lull occurred in the shooting then. The fire was spreading all over the place, and there were screams inside and out that reached me through my ringing, dust-clogged ears. People who might not get out of this. The terminal was engulfed, and the air was black with smoke. I could barely breathe myself, and flames licked down from the jagged hole in the ceiling, fuel having splashed the roof and ignited. Its heat slashed like a razor, and my only instinct was to escape, to run. This got me to my knees, and then to my feet, and then out the gaping hole that had once been glass doors to the pad, coughing, choking, alive. I had to stay away from the loyalists. They were reeling and confused, but could still kill. I counted on the smoke to cover my escape though I couldn't take two steps without hacking painfully, black, sooty phlegm and snot flying everywhere. The shuttle screamed metallically then, collapsing in place with a ground-shaking crunch and new roar of fire and smoke. It no longer resembled a flying machine, or any machine at all, just a burning mountain of metal like a gift from perdition. Hacking and spitting, I hugged the wall to keep clear of the fire, which threatened to spread. A few soldiers stumbled about, looking for enemies or maybe survivors, but they didn't see me. Or if they did, they only noticed a fat, coughing, dirt-rhymed man, as stunned and swaying as themselves. Beyond the tarmac was a plastic mesh fence that looked too tough to cut, especially considering that my only tools were now buried in the wreck. I had to find a gate. Nearing the building's edge, though, I heard a low voice, like a man acknowledging an order. If there was one trooper around the corner, likely there were more, maybe hyping themselves up for a rush. Without thinking it through, I thumbed the rifle's safety, placed it on the ground, and lay on it face down. Then I splayed my arms and legs out in something like a lifeless manner, hoping the fact that I'd just crawled out of a destroyed building meant my hair and clothing had a certain authenticity. Less than five seconds later, I heard footsteps and muttered low-speak. I had my head facing the wall, holding my breath, my eyes half open. Heck if they didn't start stinging almost immediately. There was a brief pause, then the footsteps and voices continued on past. I waited a bit, then lifted my head to look. 
There wasn't anybody nearby now, so I got up, grabbed my weapon, and took a peek around the corner. A military-style vehicle sat just beyond an open gate to the parking lot. It seemed suddenly prudent to remove the blue rag on my arm. It had come in handy, though, so I stuffed it in my pocket just in case it might again. I also took a few moments to disassemble and stow the panther back in the bag. Approaching the front lot, I saw a number of loyalist forces out there, along with a whole bunch of civilians running every which way, some of them carrying others, some of them streaming blood. The army vehicle was an oversized troop carrier thing that looked fast but light on armor, what with a glassed-in driving cab in front that just seemed like a big tempting target. Some woman with a fancier uniform than the grunts sat in there talking earnestly into a throat mic, her eyes glued to a display of some sort. There were soldiers crouching all around the vehicle, very jumpy and scanning for hostiles. I just ran past them with everyone else, and what would have been my best terrified refugee imitation if I hadn't actually been one. The parking lot dumped out to a long, lonely highway. It was a simple four-lane job, cracked and dark, but laser straight through a bleak countryside. In the distance, a very large industrial complex stood out plainly in the sunlight. Far up this road, but approaching rapidly, more of those army vehicles barreled toward the travel port. I crossed lanes and struck out upon a low plain of hard scrabble, here and there pocked white with patches of unmelted snow. There was a sheen of mud on the ground between tufts of stiff, dark green, almost black grass that stood up taller than my waist. Just below the mud, it was frozen hard, like uneven stone, and my footing was slick and bad. A small flight of what looked like armed air cars appeared from an oblique angle, high up but diving fast. They leveled out and then screamed over the travel port, seeming loud and close and scary. I had just noted the box star emblem on their bellies as they roared off directly overhead when a hot shockwave sent me sprawling face first into the cold mud. This was followed immediately by a deep, rolling whump. I sat up, confused, and looked back the way I'd come, wiping mud and dead grass from my eyes. A huge cloud of smoke and fire was rising into the white and blue streaked sky, the terminal, tarmac, and people beneath it, all engulfed, all gone. The mud felt cold, soaking through my borrowed jumpsuit. A smear of arcing blackness stabbed the heavens, looming above destruction, declaring death and mayhem for all to see. But my bottom felt icy, and it disturbed me. I slipped a few times getting up, then faced away from that scene, and set off again. Stumbling, walking, the bag bumped my leg with each step, while that unending, uncontrollable breeze, cool and crisp and clean, whispered by with simply perfect indifference. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. 
The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.